Well, this morning we continue in Hebrews. We're still in this little kind of a parenthesis section uh, in the latter part of chapter 5 and chapter 6. Um, this morning we consider verses uh, 9 to 12 of chapter 6. Sorry, I'm adjusting my screen here, which has gone wonky. There we go. Verses 9 to 12, where after warning us and admonishing us, the author then turns to a bit of encouragement, with still a little bit of, of warning built in, but really encouragement as to uh, growth in our faith rather than regressing uh, and even the worst danger of apostasy. So Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12 is before us. This morning, let me read it. As always, this is the very word of our living God. Hebrews 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, and he's talking about his severe warnings, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May he teach us and apply it to our hearts here this morning. Let me pray for us as we come before the word. Our Father in heaven, as always, we ask your blessing as we come before your word and ask you to speak to us. And that as your word goes out, that you will fulfill your own promise. That when it goes out, it does not return to you empty. Instead, goes out and fulfills all that you have purposed for it and is successful in everything for which you have sent it. To aid in that, our God and Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that you would have us see and hear and learn from your word this morning, and in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we can walk according to all that it teaches us. Father, we ask this as always in the precious, matchless, superior name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Have you ever been in a, in a position and I think not many of us are, but some of us are, you've been in a position maybe to inherit something. And you're waiting for that inheritance to come. Now, the normal way we think about that is in terms of a, a family inheritance, a, a, a parent, a, an aunt and uncle, somebody uh, that we know in our family dies, and we as heirs receive part of the inheritance. But that's not necessarily the kind of inheritance we, that we have to think of. There are other things that we can inherit or that can come our way. One example I can think of is when I was in high school, when I was an underclassman. Uh, I played in the band, I played trumpet, and there was a really, really good uh, young woman who played first chair trumpet. And I thought, well, maybe when she finally graduates, <laughs> I can move up to first chair. I can inherit that position. And there's other kinds of things. You see it in sports. Um, a player waits as a second or third stringer, and over time, finally the other player is, uh, the starter is traded or retires or something, 
and you get to inherit that starter's job. You see it in a theater, the understudy who waits in the wings uh, for the star to end their run or, or maybe they're sick or injured and they get their chance and they inherit that important role in the play. You see it in business. You take a job and you work and you work and you work and there's someone ahead of you in, in the line of promotion and you wait for that person to retire or maybe they themselves get promoted or move on so that you have the opportunity to inherit that position. There's different ways we can inherit things. And waiting for it can be a very, very, well, frustrating experience. The time it takes, um, the diligence it takes, you have to keep at it, you can't let things slide. And how you wait then can make a huge difference in whether you actually do end up inheriting that position. Another thing we see in uh, inheritance situations, if you watch crime dramas on TV, if you read crime novels, murder mysteries, who's the first person they look for if a rich person is killed? The one in the will. (laughs) Or the one who just got written out of the will. When that rich relative dies, they become the prime suspect. They did something to lose their inheritance. For me in high school, playing the trumpet, if I don't practice, I don't get to move up to first chair. Same in the other things we talked about, sports. If you're a second or third stringer, you don't continue to work hard and practice, you'll never get your opportunity to move up. The actor who doesn't prepare to be uh, ready that day for the starring role or that primary role won't get it even if they're the understudy, and so on. Now there's something similar, I think, yet also something very different, something very similar going on in this long parenthesis that we've been looking at from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 6 at verse 20. The author's worried. The author is concerned about the believers that he's writing to, these Hebrew believers. They're in danger because of the sluggishness of their faith. The same Greek word that's translated sluggish in our passage in verse 12 is also used in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, where it's dull of hearing. You become dull of hearing. Well, that can't happen. You become sluggish. You become lazy. And that's dangerous, as we saw last time, because in the worst case, it could lead even to apostasy. In their case, what seems to be going on in this Hebrew congregation is that they become fascinated with angels. We talked about this early in the letter. They seem to have become fascinated with angels who will rule the coming messianic realm instead of the Messiah himself. They become fascinated with Aaron and Moses, with Old Testament prophets instead of Christ. And that sluggishness has meant that instead of eating solid spiritual food, they're just drinking milk. And worse, they're content with that. Their faith is not being fed properly, and so they're becoming weak, atrophied, in danger of neglecting the great salvation that is theirs in Christ Jesus. So the author is taking this little parenthesis here to issue a a very, very strong warning. You're in danger. 
You are in danger. So let's leave behind this elementary stuff. Let's build upon it a, a firm house. Leave behind elementary doctrine. Sliding backwards is dangerous because if it turns into apostasy, they cannot be restored. Instead, they will be cursed and burned. It's a serious warning. It's an urgent warning. But after this warning, now in verse, verses 9 through 20 and 9 through 12 that we're going to look at this morning, the author begins to turn back to encouragement. I want to talk about the things he does here in this passage to encourage the believers. First, he tells them that he's sure of better things for them. And he has two good reasons for those that we'll talk about. Second, because he has confidence, he urges them to pursue their spiritual inheritance, things that belong to salvation, he says. Pursue these things with earnest diligence. And then third, he summarizes that spiritual inheritance with, by referring to three characteristics that we're very, very familiar with that we saw in our New Testament reading. Faith, hope, and love. All present in these uh, verses here before us this morning. So he first tells them he's sure of better things for them. He then encourages them to pursue those better things. But he also talks about what those better things are. Faith and hope and love. So let's talk about his confidence first. Again, his warnings have been urgent, they've been dire, they've been direct. The readers are in danger, and it's a real spiritual danger. And so are we if we fall into the same bad habits that they fell into. Yet he says in verse 9, even though I speak this way, even though we speak this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. He softens his warning now by referring to them as his beloved fellow believers in Jesus Christ. They're beloved by him, but they're also beloved by God himself. And that is no small thing, to be loved by the God and creator of the universe. What he's sure of are the better things that belong to salvation. And we're going to get to those in the third point here this morning. And then verse 10 gives the reasons why he is confident of better things for them. First, they do works of love. In other words, not works of duty or mere mechanical obedience. They do works of love because they have love, because they want to. They're motivated by their love. They don't do them because they have to. And then secondly, these works of love are consistent with the great commands of the law that Jesus himself summarized, to love God and to love their neighbor. He says in verse 10, that they showed love for God's sake. God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. In other words, for his glory, whatever their works of love are. And we get some idea of this later in the letter in chapter 10, uh, verses 32 to 34. But whatever those works of love are, they did them so that God would be glorified so that his name would be magnified. And these works of love were for the saints, for fellow believers, 
their most immediate neighbors in the body of Christ. So despite the dangers, despite their imbibing milk instead of good solid food, despite their sluggishness, despite their infatuation with angels and prophets and Moses and Aaron, they do have a genuine love of God and a love for the body of Christ. And this is not something they have just done in the past, but he says as well, you still do these things. There's a love that they've shown for the name of the Lord and the saints in serving them. And he says, as you still do. Their situation is dire, but there's cause to be confident because they have the fruit of true, genuine faith, and it's evident in their lives. We can stop and pause and think here about ourselves. Is that kind of fruit evident in our lives? Is it evident in yours? Is it evident in mine? Do you do works of service motivated by love for God and love for others instead of just out of duty or obedience or hoping for some sort of reward? Do you desire God's glory and to serve your fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? If so, that's a great thing. If not, we need to rethink our motives. But if so, there's a second reason then for confidence that the author talks about here. Again in verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. He does not overlook, he does not miss, he doesn't fail to see these works of love. And one of the writers that I read this week made a great point. What does God forget about us? And our works. As far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth, what does he forget? Our sins. What does he remember about us? <laughs> our works of love. He remembers those things we do for his glory and for his people. Now what's being said here is not that God rewards our works with salvation, which some try to argue, this is a verse that Roman Catholics will use to say that salvation is by faith plus works. That's not what he's saying. The faith is already evident in the works. The works are a result of faith, evidence of faith, and therefore a reason for confidence. Those who have true faith are truly among God's people, his sheep, and will never be lost. So it's not because of their works that they earn salvation, but because their works so genuine faith that God will not overlook them. He knows the difference better than anyone between works that are done out of mere duty, obligation, to curry his favor, versus works that spring from true faith and true love. So here, here's this situation where even though the believers are struggling mightily, and these people are, they're in danger. There's severe danger, even though they're sluggish, even though they're dull of hearing, God sees evidence of their genuine faith and will not let them continue to struggle. In fact, he inspired this author to write this letter to these people, to encourage them, to warn them, to direct them to a better path. And so also for us, God sends his word, he sends pastors, teachers, friends, family members to admonish and warn and teach us as well. Sometimes we need that spiritual kick in the pants. And God sends people into our lives to do that for us. He loves us enough to do that for us. To give us that little kick in the pants 
that we need. So there's confidence. Confidence based on what he sees in the lives of the believers. Confidence that God will continue to work in their lives. Not unlike Paul to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So based on this confidence, the author expresses a desire in verses 11 and 12 that his readers would be just as earnest in pursuing the full inheritance of their salvation. Not just works of love, but the whole gamut of what it means to be a saved believer. He's confident, he says in verse 9, of better things, things that he says belong to salvation. Better things than milk. Better things than apostasy. And he elaborates on these things in verses 11 and 12 with the goal at the end that they would inherit the promises of God, the promises of salvation. So again, he wants his readers, he wants us, to be just as earnest, just as active, just as diligent in all their work to receive the spiritual inheritance that is theirs. They've been pursuing works of love. They've been doing well in one area, demonstrating and continuing to show the love of God in the saints. But now they need to expand that into the rest of their spiritual lives. They're earnest, they're diligent in loving God and loving others, but now they need to apply that same earnestness and diligence to other areas of their Christian life too. Putting off sluggishness, there's that word, again in verse 12, and instead imitate those who do inherit the promises of salvation. They're like the understudy in the theater, or me back in high school playing the trumpet in band. Have to keep at it. Have to imitate those who are better. I want to play like this young lady who's good at the trumpet, so I can be what she has been when my turn comes in the band. Can't be lazy, can't be sluggish, can't be dull in our pursuit of the Christian life. And unfortunately, sluggish, desultory, lazy Christianity is all too easy. It's all too easy to become complacent in our faith. We have a great example in in Revelation. The letters to the seven churches. The first one is in Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7, the church in Ephesus. It's interesting how similar the warning there is to what's going on in Hebrews. The Son of Man, there in Revelation, urges John to write to the church in Ephesus, acknowledging some things, their works, their toil, their patient endurance, very much echoes again of Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34. But the Son of Man, Jesus, has one thing against them. They have abandoned the love they had at first and are in danger of having their lampstand removed. Doesn't that sound like what we've been going through in Hebrews? That's what sluggish, complacent faith looks like. The loss of that first love that we have in Jesus Christ. And if that's you in your walk of faith today, then hear the call in this passage this morning to an earnest, patient, diligent pursuit of all the promises of of salvation from God. Something for us to think about as a church as well, as a group, as a body. Have we together become sluggish? What does a sluggish, complacent church look like? 
And how can we together, together, be earnest and diligent in our pursuit together of the promises of salvation? Well, let's look at those promises. There are many, they're varied, but the author summarizes them here, I think, and others see this, I think, as well in what I've read. He summarizes these promises of salvation in three things that we're very, very, very familiar with. Love, faith, and hope. Love they have, and they consistently show it and still do. Part of the basis, again, of the author's confidence for them. But in verses 11 and 12, he urges them to deeper faith and hope. In verse 11, he wants them to have a full assurance of hope until the end. And then in verse 12, he wants them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. He wants them to pursue both of these things with the same earnestness, the same diligence that they have their love. He wants them to do it diligently. And we see his concern that they're not doing it because he warns them about sluggishness and urges them to this earnestness. They're not earnest. They have been sluggish. And so now this, this needs to change. Let's talk about hope first. The hope that they're encouraged <clears throat> to pursue in verse 11. Pursue it earnestly. Full assurance of hope until the end. We've talked about this before. Christian hope is not just wishful thinking for something better in the future. Not just optimistic thoughts that things will somehow go better down the road. Christian hope is assurance. It's confidence. It's knowing that something better is coming because the God who promised that something better is coming delivers on his promises. In urging them to this, again, the author is implying that something is lacking with them. They don't have this level of confident assured hope. Or maybe their hope is in other things that we've talked about before. Angelic rulers to come in the Messianic age. Uh, Old Testament Jewish laws and practices. Old Testament prophets and saints. To have full assurance of, of the right kind of hope then, they need to study. They need solid food. They need to get off of milk. They need to study what the promises of God are and the character of the God who makes those promises. Some of the key promises, the blessed hope that we talk about in Christianity, resurrection at the last day, confidence that they will stand before God at the judgment right with Him, acceptable to Him, at peace with God, as we heard earlier from Romans 5.1. And therefore, because of that, we'll enter into eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth to come. That's the hope that awaits us. Do we have full assurance of that hope? Do we know why we have full assurance of that hope? Do we see the work of God to accomplish that for us in Jesus Christ and cling to that hope without wavering? You have to know God. You have to know the character of God. You have to know His promises. You have to know why those promises are sure and certain. Or else you won't have that kind of hope. But then he also calls upon them to imitate the faithful. If you drink only spiritual milk, your faith will become weak. 
That's a problem for this Hebrew audience. Again, they seem to have directed their faith, as well as their hope, toward these angelic rulers to come. Old Testament prophets, Moses, Aaron. And so the author's central theme in this letter continually is that Jesus is better than anything or anyone. And that theme seems to be necessary because Jesus is no longer the central thing in their faith. They're looking to other things. They're distracted. Angels, Moses, Aaron, the law, prophets. Why are Christian sermons and teachings so Christ-centered? Why do we always talk about Jesus? Why do we always talk about the need for faith in Him? Well, because they have to be. (laughs) Again, something I've said before, we believers need the gospel as much or more than any non-believer. And the reason is because we we become so easily sluggish in our faith. We take Jesus and His work for granted. We forget the work that He did for us. We forget that He obeyed the law on our behalf. We forget that and get caught up in our own works righteousness, trying to be good, trying to be acceptable to God, somehow trying to show that we deserve what we've gotten. Go back and read Galatians. That's what those people were trying to do, justify themselves before God. Or we forget that Christ is Lord and God and King and Savior and Friend. And so we become enamored with other people and things, other idols, other celebrities, chariots and horses and men of power and at worst, turn to false religions. So we need to be reminded. We need to remember who God is. Again, what He has done for us in sending His Son to live without sin, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins, to rise to life again as evidence, as proof that we will rise in the future and then offer the perfect obedience of His Son in exchange for our sin freely, as a gift, nothing we have to trade for, nothing we have to earn, work for, but just accept it. Just receive it. Just rest upon it. We need to hear that time and time and time again because we're so easily distracted. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, and I think this is part of the reason why this author turns and focuses on these three things. At the end, three things remain. When all else is gone, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. We don't even have to be patient anymore. As the author writes here in verse 12, those who through faith and patience inherit the promises because we will have them. With these three things as our inheritance, things that I think summarize the promises of salvation for us, we can patiently endure until we receive the fullness of salvation at the end of all things. Patiently enduring is again a theme of revelation. Patiently endure. Patiently endure. We need all three. We need faith, hope, and love. If you lack one or two, you're really indeed lacking as a, as a believer. Love by itself. What does love by itself become in the end? And it's in danger here for the, the readers of this letter, the recipients of it. Love by itself, you're just a bunch of do-gooders. It becomes works-oriented, what I've done or what we've done. Without the definition and and context of, of faith in Scripture and what that is, what's love anyway? What does it become around us? What is it becoming in the broader evangelical world? 
it becomes very subjective. It becomes very open to manipulation. It becomes what we've talked about around here for a while. Love is being nice. Love is not offending anybody or making them uncomfortable. Instead of what love is as described in Scripture that we read about from 1 Corinthians 13. You need true faith and you need true hope to put love in its proper context so that it can be practiced correctly. But what about faith by itself? Well, we know this. Faith by itself isn't true faith. There's the danger of apostasy. True faith is always accompanied by evidence of that faith. Works of love and hope in God's promises. Again, this is why the author has confidence and is sure of better things for these believers. He sees evidence of that true faith and so urges pursuit of hope and, and, and faith and the whole fullness of God's salvation. You can't have faith by itself. Faith by itself is meaningless. What about hope by itself? Well, now here we're back at what the world has, just wishful thinking. Hope by itself is, is just wishful thinking. The best that the philosophers can come up with when it comes to hope is that it is some kind of a moral obligation because it, it requires us to strive for better things. Gee, thanks for that. That's encouraging. Hope by itself is just utopian nonsense or just sitting back and dreaming dreamy dreams. I hope it gets better. That's meaningless. True hope has faith in the one who promises and confident hope that he keeps his promises. And that one who keeps promises is who we're going to turn to, Lord willing, next as we finish out chapter 6. For now, for today, I think it's helpful for us to, to stop and think and take a look at ourselves individually, look at our church here together, maybe look even at the broader church and ask ourselves, do we show evidence of being sluggish in one or more of these areas, faith or hope or love? Are you complacent? Have you become sluggish? Have we become complacent or sluggish together? And if we have, and where we are sluggish, what can we do to help each other? To leave elementary things behind and instead earnestly and diligently pursue faith and hope and love. Because that's our inheritance, both now and eternally. And it's your inheritance. Pursue it. Chase it. And do it with all you have, earnestly and with diligence. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would help us, again, to avoid sluggishness, to help us pursue the things that are important and vital to our faith, to our life, following after you. We acknowledge readily and immediately that we cannot do this by our own strength. And so we look to the promise of help that you have provided through your word and by the power of your spirit. Pour out your spirit upon us. Again, we ask to guide us and lead us to be those who would be diligent, who would be earnest, who would avoid, even be scared of, complacently, complacency. Um, not because we fear 
for our, our eternal salvation, but because we do fear uh, the consequences that, that that could come with that. We would rather grow uh, in our faith and, and grow in the blessings of our faith and begin to experience and, and receive and see the fruits of all the, the benefits and blessings of the inheritance we have in and through and with Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen.